Well, good morning. For those of you who don't know who I am, my name is Kristen. And whoa, I drop things and almost fall, so that's good. Um, and I've been attending Mountainside for a number of years now. And I do a whole host of things, but um, yeah, today I just want to be a community member. I want to be present with all of you because I don't know about you, but I need Jesus this week. Um, Josh and Ari have fled the country. I pray <laughs> that they come back um, <laughs> with the boys. The boys are with them. I've also encouraged them to post as much pictures of Italian food as necessary to get me through their absence. So, um, And I'm really glad to have the confirmation students with us today. Um, you are all such an important contribution to this community. And um, I'm hoping that this message, I wrote this with you in mind. I wrote it a week ago, and then I had to rewrite it this week um, with the events that happened. So I'm aware that there is so much reactivity. <laughs> and um, I'm also aware that I am one person and can't fix everything in one 20-minute sermon. <laughs> um, but I am aware of how much I have needed healing in Jesus this week. So I had Deborah bring me up Kleenex. Those around if needed. Um, and as I prepped, I this, this series in John is about um, signs and wonders, right? And as I was praying about this sermon and prepping it, I realized that I have been looking in all of for signs and wonders. Um, one, we are still a people that is frantically looking for signs and wonders. And is it on? There we go. So, I don't know if you have heard of BuzzFeed. It is... <laughs> Um, online, it's a huge company, and they put together original material in these shows. And one show that I have just go down the rabbit hole when I have papers to grade and things to do is called BuzzFeed Unsolved. Ryan's on the left, and Shane is on the right. And I'm telling you that because if Nate and I ever did a reality TV show, it's already been done. This is it. You can go watch this. I am on the left. Nate is on the right. Um, and it's these two guys, and they travel around the country, and they go looking for phenomenon, whether that's ghosts or aliens or signs of signs and wonders. And they set up all these little gimmicks, and they never find anything, but it's always like the thrill of looking that I'm just like, maybe this week, maybe we'll get something. Um, they have regularly four to nine million views on any given episode. Um, the one down here is when they go to an asylum, and I'll get back to that. And one of the most interesting things about this series is the history of these places where they go that they think are haunted, right? And mind you, Kristen character thinks everything is haunted, and the Nate character is like, seriously, we're here again, why, no, there's nothing, and I'm like, but I believe! Um, so there's that. But this isn't the first show, maybe some of you remember this show. Yep, so this show also haunts me from the 80s into the 90s. There's still reruns today. So BuzzFeed isn't doing anything new. And that's kind of the other thread through this sermon, is that Unsolved Mysteries, probably 
went through some of the same exact shows that BuzzFeed has done. So even this week, we are in a season of cultural and political engagement. Um, it's about signs and wonders. We want miracles from a system that is not built for miracles or to acknowledge miracles. Meanwhile, we're looking for answers and want truth. It's easy to believe some things. It's easy to believe survivors, for me. Um, it's harder to believe in miracles. It's harder to believe in wonder. And I think that John 5, which is where we're in today, really going on in John 5. John asks us to look in different places for signs and wonders. John asks us, as Sonia pointed out in the first few weeks, to look from our cosmology, which is just a big, huge, fancy word for how we got here, right? What's the story of the universe? And John says, shift your gaze. You need to come back down to earth. You need to get grounded. Um, you need to look at Start John 5 here. After this, there was a festival of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now in Jerusalem, by the Sheep Gate, there is a pool, called in Hebrew, Bethsaida, which has five porticos. In these lay many invalids, blind, lame, paralyzed. One man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Okay? Now 38 years when this society would have made him the equivalent of a senior citizen, right? So this is something, I mean, like that he'd been there for 38 years meant that he was extremely, like just to put it in context, he'd spent a significant amount of time. And experts studying this site and the Bible thought the pool was possibly metaphorical. They didn't know that Jesus was actually talking about a place because a lot of these places have actually been excavated. And if you've ever been to Israel or Palestine, you've seen some of them. But in the early 1900s, they found it. And um, a man by the name of Professor Michael Aviona, I hope I'm saying his name right, um, recreated what this pool would look like. And as you can see, these are the porticos. So there's five sides. And then the pool would have been in the middle. And the sheep gate that's mentioned is that gate way up there in the far left corner. Can you see that? And I want to point out this sheep gate because this is kind of interesting and gross. <laughs> but this gate was used to bring sacrificial sheep into the temple after having been washed in the pool. Okay? So before it's a place for the invalids, it's a place where animals go to get clean. And that's where we put the crazy and the sick people. The place where animals have done some pretty gross stuff. And this gate is referred to in John 10 again. And Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. And for Jesus to call himself the gate and not the shepherd is so significant because um, I found this quote from this scholar and teacher, Jill Caratini, and she says that everyone in this day and age would have known that gate. They would have known that the sheep go in and they do not come out. And so for Jesus to say, I am the gate by which you are going to come in and then leave, 
was a pretty big promise to say you're going to come in and then go out from a place where you would normally be slaughtered and find pasture, find peace. So the context is revealing. They don't have to die. And so we jump to this next passage. When Jesus saw him lying there, we're back in the pool now that's been made this place, and knew that he had been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am making my way, someone else steps in ahead of me. Jesus said to him, stand up, take your mat and walk. At once the man was made well, and he took up his mat and began to walk. So again, we're in this place, like I said, with the water, and it possibly was a water reservoir at 1.2. And there's been lots of debate about what it meant, this pool. Was it just that an angel came down and touched the waters? What made this pool miraculous? There were other pools around it that have more or stone statues of ears and feet that were pagan pools of healing. But again, I think that John, we're getting caught up in the wrong things. We're getting caught up in going to these places and saying, what was supernatural? I need to see the sign and wonder. And we're missing that Jesus is sitting right there. Theologian John Vanier, and I hope I'm saying his name right, um, explains that Jesus is back in town for a festival. It said that in the first part of the passage. But he doesn't go to the bastions of learning and power. He went to the asylum, and that's literally what that place was in that picture. It's the place where they put the crazy people. It's the place where they put the sick people. It's where they left them to die. And it's here that we hear this man say, I have no one. There's a cry of loneliness, and that's what Jesus hears. He doesn't even say, heal me. He's just stating his truth. He's stating his reality. And Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? And that question, when I was planning this sermon, and even before, it was the question that I kept going back to. Do you want to be made well? He could have said no. He could have straight up ignored Jesus. But listen again to what he is saying. His truth is a truth of saying, I have no one. People cut in front of me. Of course I want to be healed. But I can't by myself. So is that hope? Is that despair? Are those one and the same thing? In this moment, and that's why I loved this picture, because it's not Jesus in like clean white robes, as I call him Swedish Jesus. Like, it's just Jesus hanging out on these steps with really sick, outcast people. And he's just listening. Jesus would rather meet people here. He doesn't go to the temple. He doesn't even go to the places of learning or law. There are stories that are told to us, stories of winners and losers, stories of success, and it's the stories of brokenness and vulnerability that are harder to sit with. The stories of trauma, violence, bullying, if bullying is going on at your school, abuse, mental illness, these big things that even start at our schools, right? There are stories shoved to the side or in need of a fix or a solution, and I'm guilty of that. Like, I want to fix it, right? Stories should, that time should heal, but instead we find ourselves re-triggered time and time again. 
And Vignet again says, many people today are overwhelmed by despair, and not only in asylums. It's as if they are paralyzed in mind and heart, like this man in the story. They don't know where to turn or what to do in front of all the divisions, wars, corruption, injustices, poverties, hypocrisy, and lies of our world. And I felt that this summer. This summer I had the opportunity to be a fellow for something called the Practicing Democracy Project. And I had to come up with these workshops on compassionate action and how to love your enemy. And when we would go and do these workshops, um, and people would find out I didn't have a magical formula. I got yelled at a lot. <laughs> Their anxiety just turned into a need to yell more. Jesus might have been saying, do you want to be healed? But they could only mirror the system that they'd grown to hate. They weren't interested in healing. They were interested in giving their power away to reactivity. And I know that I have been in circumstances where I've given away my power too. I've been there. There's too much pain to realize that Jesus is wandering around asking if I want to be healed. And so how do we engage this? And I just want to be so clear, because I'm also holding right now that anxiety and depression are real. So real. I had postpartum anxiety with Thatcher, and I would have these terrible panic attacks in the Trader Joe's parking lot, and I didn't even know what I was experiencing. And I've had panic attacks since second grade, but nobody knew what to do with it. So I learned to hide it. I learned to perform to compensate for my anxiety. And I still wrestle with panic attacks that close my throat. I get nervous. Anxiety is something that one can hide. And medicine has saved my life at different times. Sometimes I feel like we're looking for a magical formula, and medicine was invented to help. <laughs> And yet there's this, and I, as I was going back into these quotes, there's this quote from a guy named Leslie Newbegin, and he writes, one-fifth of all material in the four Gospels is concerned with the healing of physical disease. The virtual ignoring of this work of healing during most of Christian history is one of the most astonishing facts which the theologian and the historian must try to explain. And I can't explain that. Can I tell you, like, if you pray hard enough, you'll be healed? The, the ache will go away for a long time this past year. And that's why part of this sermon, when I called Sonia this week, I was like, I think I want to preach. I don't know if I can do this. But for a long time, I couldn't pray. I was one of those people Josh talked about last week. When I was pregnant, Nate got laid off. Two weeks after Shep was born, we were shuttled from hospital to hospital. I heard words like cystic fibrosis, enlarged heart, all kinds of these diagnoses. And meanwhile, he just kept breathing at 100 breaths per minute. I hadn't even like healed from my stitches. <laughs> I pictured a life so different in those moments, of doctor's visits, of a very boundaried life, a life where I wanted my child to live, and it didn't feel like healing because I had the privilege to think about comfort. But also, because of that, I didn't feel like Jesus wanted to hear from me. And that was my narrative. Jesus didn't heal my grandma before I was born. She died in open heart surgery. Jesus didn't heal my sick brother when he was in the hospital five to seven times a year. 
And people said some pretty awful things to us growing up at our church. And so how did I reconcile that when people said, like, this is because of things in the past that this is happening to your family? People say some really harsh things. And I'm sure that even in school, you, some of you have felt that. They say things because they don't know what to say. They're trying to make themselves feel better. And so I see the brokenness in the systems of government, in our food system, in schools, and in church. And I forgot, or maybe I never knew what it was like to ask for a miracle. And so what does being healed really mean? When we were discussing this in our planning meeting, Sonia was talking about her dad, and her dad faced a lot of health struggles. He was a quadriplegic, and I have permission to share this from her. But she had this profound epiphany when we were planning this, and she said, you know what, but my dad was healed. And others around him chose to choose depression, these were her words, choose depression and choose to get really sick instead of seeing the healing in the circumstance. And again, this is tricky because those in the asylums, those labeled as crazy or liars or bullied in school, I, please don't hear me say that God is a God that says, oh, I'm going to put you through this. That these are trials sent by God. Facing brokenness is part of this life. And that's not sent by God. And for me, I may never heal from my anxiety, but a shift began when I started to listen to it instead of fighting against it. I was so tired, and I'm so tired this week, of mirroring a system or shutting down and just sitting by the pool. I, I want to be seen, and I want to be healed. And isn't that what we all want? And listening to that deep longing shifted me to look in other places. And so what I think one of the real gifts of this story is, is that maybe it's not about curing. Maybe it is. I don't want to not believe in the miracle. But maybe the truth is in telling your story and listening to other people's stories. It's okay to tell your truth. Because Jesus. Because hashtag Jesus. Jesus wants us to come back out of the gate. And maybe that's a miraculous healing. Maybe that's with our wounds. But Jesus wants us to find pasture. When I talk to people in government and education and healthcare, and the same sentiment is there. The system is broken. The system is broken. People aren't well. People in power are toxic. The system has to change. I don't like my teacher. Ah. But a lot of people, and I'm not talking about the people who are struggling with mental illness right now. I'm talking about people who have just chosen to complain and be distracted. And we're not the first people to live in a broken system. We're not. <laughs> we're not special. <laughs> so this happens. And now that day was Sabbath. And so the Jews said to the man who had been cured, it is the Sabbath. It is not lawful for you to carry your mat. But he answered them, the man who made me well said to me, take up your mat and walk. And they asked him, who is this man who said to you, take it up and walk? And now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had disappeared into the crowd that was there. And later Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see, you have been made well. 
Do not sin anymore so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. The Jews were concerned with the law. They were really concerned with encroaching paganism, right? They needed to be, have their group. And he's breaking the law, and so they're confronting him about it. He was supposed to be hidden away. He wasn't supposed to come back out. He followed his path of healing, and it didn't make sense. He didn't even know who Jesus was. He's like, I don't know, I just got up and walked. And he's called back out into the broken system. But he's called back out to declare Jesus' name. We have to reassess what it means to be made well. Are the sick the healthy ones? Are the crazies the sane? The most vulnerable the strongest? There's a reason why Jesus lets the kids come. He's not a fool. (laughs) Have we become spectators on the sidelines of the pool instead of being invited into the work of the public church? And I don't have time to get into all of this, but there's these points that were brought up in 1988 by James Fowler. He used the work of a guy named Richard Sennett, Parker Palmer, and Martin E. Marty to call the church back into public church because the church had been so siphoned off into protecting the private spheres of life. So like that meant your only identity would be in I'm a daughter or I'm a wife or I'm a family. You did work and you came home. That was it. And I think that Mountainside, we get this. We get the idea of public church. It means that it's a church without boundaries. And I'm going to breeze through this because I want to get to the end. Um, That the witness of this church is about standing shoulder to shoulder. We, Sonia talked about that a few weeks ago, about Esma and standing with her after she was called on for wearing her um, headscarf. But these second points, that we care about emerge both public and private. Our faith isn't contained in these walls. We carry our faith into marketplace and schools and hospitals. We carry it into the brokenness of these systems. But we're called to not just take mountainside with us, we're called to take Jesus with us. And this last point of okay with ambiguity and complexity, because I can feel the need on social media to like, we gotta figure this out. We've gotta stand up, we've gotta vote, we've gotta do this, we've gotta do this. And that God is greater than any law, structure, system, or theology, amen? That we have to be confident that God is big, that God is with people. And that we need to build an ecology of care and vocation through the public church. That we have to shift our focus once again to Jesus. Not as a point of distraction. Don't hear me say that because we're doing the work. I know so many of you are doing the work so well. But in order to not be distracted by the distractions. Does that make sense? (laughs) I can get so distracted and bogged down and lose hope and in turn, I feel like I lose, I lose Jesus. Jesus never loses me. But I lose Jesus. And I lose sight of where the asylums are that I need to pour my attention into. Do you want to be healed? Do you want to walk out of the gate? Maybe believing we can walk out of the gate is just the first step to a miracle. 
It might be a wonky path. It might not even be the path that you imagined. But what does it mean to believe in BB-8 and Jesus? <laughs> it sounds like you did. So when it comes to the asylums, the crazy, the vulnerable, the persecuted, and I'm saying those words because I know that so many of you in this room, I'm not trying to call people crazy, vulnerable. Like, that's what all of these distractions call people. And we know, because we sit with people day in and day out, and I feel crazy and vulnerable. <laughs> and maybe we should stop avoiding people and hiding them and hiding our ailments and woes. And if you are one of these people who's in one of these places, is there a way and a safe place to tell your story? To tell your truth to the powers? For me this week, it came in walking away from said fellowship where I was worried about my status and my reputation, and it was a super toxic environment. I was scared to step out and make new friends and leave this thing that I feel like was important, but I was being a tyrant to myself. The miracle is in being able to let go, to listen to Jesus saying, do you want to be healed? And to know that that didn't come in the way that I expected it to. It came in quitting. It came in finding prayer again and going back to a quote that my spiritual director told me, you are allowed to ask for what you actually desire. And like Josh said last week, that doesn't mean that the answer is going to be what I want. <laughs> Jesus can say no, but don't forget that Jesus is there asking if you want to be healed. And I'm glad that the kids are coming back in because this video I'm going to show to close is really, really important. Um, so this is Claire Wineland, and I don't know if any of you have followed her story. She was a really famous blogger, um, and she battled cystic fibrosis. And this whole question of do you want to be healed, she frames this in a way, kids, that I think is really important to hear because some of you might be facing some trials and some of you might have friends that are sick. And so what does that mean to find Jesus? Um, Tim, can you fire it up? That I am sick. I will probably always be sick. Can you rewind and it to I the beginning? I am 100% content. When you pity people who are sick, you take away their power. That I am sick, I will probably always be sick, and yet I am 100% content and happy with my life. 100%. But, and I have something called cystic fibrosis, but I'm actually not here to depress you all about cystic fibrosis. Um, I'm actually here to talk about how do we change the way that we treat sick people? How do we stop pitying them and we start empowering them? The way that our society works, we teach sick people that when they are sick, somehow, some way, they cannot be as happy as normal healthy people, right? We teach them that their happiness, their contentment in life, their joy in life is tied to how healthy we are. And I remember I was around 
seven or eight years old, and I was, I, I was like flipping through this magazine, and there's this really beautiful picture of like this artist in like their New York loft apartment. And I'm sitting there, and I look around my hospital room, and I'm like, I wish I was there. And I had a moment where I was like, but I'm stuck in the hospital. And I thought, well, you know, there's a Target right down the street that has some twinkle lights and some throw pillows. And I have a room. I have furniture. Why don't I make something out of this room? Why don't I deck it out? So me and my nanny decided to completely redo the hospital room. And I don't mean like just put some pictures on the wall. I mean like completely redo the room. We were like moving around the furniture. I was like sweating. My machines were beeping. The nurses were coming in like, what are you doing? You're crazy. Um, and by the end, we had completely transformed the room. And nurses and doctors from all over the hospital came in to see it. And so every time I ended up going into the hospital, I would deck out my hospital room. I started to realize that people who are sick, and, and nurses and doctors as well, everyone in the medical community, everyone in the healthcare community, have, get so stuck in this notion that a hospital room is this cold, sterile, white place where we go to be sick. And that that's all that it can be. And we get so stuck in that that we cannot see the possibility. We can't see what we can make out of it don't see what we can do with it. And I started realizing that our lives, in a way, are like this, right? Our lives are like empty hospital rooms. We get so stuck in the idea that, oh, it's supposed to be good or bad. Uh, oh, if we're sick, well, you know, that, then, it, then it's, it's cold and it's sterile, and we just have to live with it like that. We don't let ourselves realize, we don't let ourselves see. We can make that hospital room beautiful. We can make our lives into a piece of art. We all have that ability, we all have that capability as human beings to turn these empty hospital rooms, to turn these lives into something really beautiful. We look at people who are sick and we pity them because we believe that their sickness means their life has to be inherently less joyous than everyone else's. Teach people who are sick, 
When you teach little seven-year-old me that because I'm sick, I don't have anything to give to the world. I don't have anything to create. So I want to encourage you all. Next time you meet someone who's suffering, who's in pain, instead of shutting down, instead of pitying them, why don't you think, I bet their life is so beautiful. Really look at them and think, I bet their life is so complex. All get to be a part of this giant human epic story, right? We get to be a part of human history. We get to add to it. We have something to give. And we realize it's what we're creating that matters. It's what we're adding to this beautiful story that matters. When we start looking at that, we can change the world. And so Claire passed away a month ago. The lung transplant didn't take, but her legacy and her life lives on. And what she's asking for is not to pity her. She's asking for you to believe in miracles. And that's what this table is about. That's the reason why we come to church in weeks like this. Because Jesus died too. And his body broke. And he said, break this. This is my body broken for you. <laughs> and he said, of this cup. This is my blood poured out for you. And I know that so many of this room don't run from the brokenness. We face it. But may we be brave enough in coming to this table every week to ask for a miracle. Don't stop believing in miracles. We have to believe in miracles because that's what it means to believe in Jesus. Laws won't fix things. People won't fix. Systems won't fix things. Even in our lifetime, it's not guaranteed that we will be the fixers but Jesus is big enough. And I need to hear that this week because there are times when I don't believe that. So kids, Jesus is with you in school and Jesus is with you in those times that are tough. Jesus is with all those firefighters, right? Yeah. So may we come to this table today to, because we believe in that Jesus. Amen? Amen.